0: Good morning, I want to welcome you to Briam Bible Church this morning. I uh, appreciate you being with us. We're going to begin this morning with a very important quote from J.I. Packer. I think this quote is worth our understanding, it's worth our meditation, you've heard me use it before, but I think if you understand this quote, it, you will gain a huge advantage in your study of the Scriptures. He says, we do not start our Christian lives by working out our faith for ourselves. It is mediated to us by Christian tradition in the form of sermons, books, established patterns of church life, and fellowship. We read our Bibles in light of what we have learned from these sources. You know, if you just become a brand new Christian and you read your Bible, you still have all this influence from outside, from movies, from whatever, from your history, from your childhood, that form your reading and taint your reading. He goes on to say, We approach Scripture with minds already formed by the mass of accepted opinions and viewpoints with which we have come into contact in both the church and the world. It is easy to be unaware that it has happened, It is hard even to begin to realize how profoundly tradition in this sense has molded us. But we are forbidden to become enslaved to human tradition, either secular or Christian, whether it be Catholic tradition or critical tradition or ecumenical tradition. We may never assume the complete rightness of our own established ways of thought and practice and excuse ourselves the duty of testing and reforming them by Scripture. Man, that is a powerful, powerful quote. We need to test everything we believe by the text. Which means there has to be a text to back up what we believe. You got that, right? The beliefs you hold have to come out of the text. And we must be open to allowing the text to shatter our preconceived notion of things. Now, if you hold to the Arminian persuasion of theology and you believe that Yeshua, man comes to Yeshua by his own free will, I beg you to listen to the text we're going to talk about this morning. I beg you to examine the text, to pray over the text. John chapter 6 decimates the Arminian view. It totally and undeniably destroys Arminianism. If you Let it speak in the text. I had a pastor friend who... I talked to this about him many times and he would just shake his head and say, no, no, no. He was Arminian. He began to teach through the Gospel of John. And he didn't get too far until he realized this is what the Scripture teaches. So, you know, going verse by verse through Scripture really can change your view on things. Now... For the first 13 years of my Christian life, I was Arminian. So I know what the other side believes. I've been there. I know the verses. I knew, I thought I knew, that man's free will was, you know, it was about his choice. If he wanted to come to Christ, he could because he decided to. We call this decisional regeneration. Now, what changed my view, and it wasn't easy to change, I fought it for a while, but what changed my view was the text. See, my downfall was that I taught the Scriptures verse by verse. And I was going through the book of James, you know, you're at a great disadvantage when you teach verse by verse, you know, because you don't, you can't preach on your pet subject every week, although my wife seems to think that I can find preterism in every verse. (laughs) I don't really. It's not really there, okay? But I was teaching through the book of James. Like I said, I've been a Christian about 13 years. And I got to verse 18. Now this is, you'll notice it's King James here, because that's what I was using back then. And King James says, Of his own will begatting us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. And I thought, what does it mean, of his own will? What about my will? And we had a conflict here, you know, me and God. And so it took weeks and weeks of banging my head against the desk and praying and crying and under the bed saying the Greek alphabet, doing all kinds of crazy stuff that I realized God is sovereign over man's life. All of it. And I kind of gave up and surrendered at that point, all right? And I made the switch to what people would call Calvinism. You know, I don't really like those labels, but. You know, it's a lot easier to just say, hey, "Here's where I'm at." Are you Arminian? Or are you Calvinistic? You know, it's funny because to an Arminian, a Calvinist is a hyper-Calvinist, and I, I think we use language we don't even know what it means. You know, hyper means beyond. So to go beyond Calvin is what I don't know. If you believe what Calvin taught, then you know you're not going beyond him. You know, but see, most Arminians don't think Calvin taught what he taught, so it gets yeah, all right. <laughs> Many in churchianity. And even many believers don't like the biblical truth that God sovereignly chooses who will be saved. They just don't like that. To them, the decision of salvation is totally up to man, and it's man's free will. And how dare God violate man's free will? Does that sound blasphemous or something? How dare God anything? He's God. When you get to be God, you can do whatever you want. But you're not God. So you just line up under what He teaches. So, in their view, God in God's, you're actually kind of doing your own thing. And God can't override your free will. And so it's kind of foolish to even pray and ask God to save somebody. God's like, I'd like to save them, but they got a will and I can't override it. So how do we pray then? You know, this, in my view, this is a humanistic doctrine. It elevates man over God. Puts man in charge. You know, let's move God down a little bit. Let man be in charge. Let man make the decision of what's going to happen here. Now, as we look at this text this morning, please keep in mind context. When it comes to biblical interpretation, context is king. Now, Calvinists will often pull verses out of this chapter to support their view. But these verses are so much more powerful when seen in context. When you understand the context of this chapter, the flow of the chapter, and we've been going through this for weeks here, so hopefully you have this context set. Let me review it just a second here so you get what's going on here. Alright, Yeshua went with His disciples to the other shore of the Sea of Galilee basically for some R&R. They needed to get alone. The Scripture said they didn't even have time to eat. So they're going to get away. Well, they get to the other side, and guess what? The crowds are there ahead of them. You know, And so they never did get a break. And so he heals people all day long on that side. And then he feeds them 20,000 plus people. He feeds them. This is just amazing. You know, how does this happen? You've got five loaves of bread, a couple little fish, and he feeds all these people. And he's got all these leftovers left over. Remember what I said about the leftovers. They're all bread. Right? Why is that? A lot of people were on the ketogenic diet, okay? No, we don't skip, we skip the bread, just give us the protein. All right, that (laughs) diet goes way back further than people think, all right? I'm kidding, of course, all right? Don't write me. All right, so the people are kind of amazed, and they recognize, you know, this is what the Scriptures talk about the Messianic king will be like. This is the, you know, this could be the Messiah. And Messianic expectations are very high at this time you know, here in Jerusalem. And so they decide they want to make Him king. Well, Yeshua realizes this, so immediately puts the disciples in the boat, sends them away. He goes into a mountain to pray to be alone. Overnight, He realizes, He sees the disciples are aboard the ship. They're out at sea. They're struggling. There's a bad storm. So He walks across the sea to get to them. He steps into the boat. As soon as He steps into the boat, the storm stops, and the boat is teleported to the shore of Capernaum where they were going. Then in the morning, the crowd that He fed had crossed over to Capernaum looking for Him. They're seeking Christ. They're following Christ. And when the crowd found Him, Yeshua pointed out that their motivation in seeking Him, they just wanted another meal. And He exhorted them to seek for that which eternally satisfies. Then they asked Him for a sign. He said, well, can you give us a sign? Can you prove that you're a representative of God? I'd be like, people, where have you been? You just were over there. You saw all this stuff, and now you're asking me for a sign. But they asked for a sign, and they pointed to Moses. You know, Moses gave us man in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, you fed a group of us for a day, just a small crowd. There was millions of people in the wilderness. So, basically, they're saying, can you outperform Moses? If you're the new Messiah, you should be able to outperform Moses. The Jewish expectation at that time was that Messiah would renew the gift of manna. Many of the writings talked about that. Well, Yeshua responded by saying that it was the Father, not Moses, who gave them bread from heaven. And that's the bread that gives life to the world. And I think that in this text, Lazarus is presenting Yeshua as the new Moses. He's the one who will lead the new Exodus. He will lead the people out of the bondage of sin and death. This is the Moses that was promised in Deuteronomy 18 that Moses talked about. But what Yeshua is offering is spiritual, not physical. See, that's where the problem lies. These people were looking towards the physical. That's all they could see. The bread that Yeshua speaks of brings eternal life, but the crowd was thinking in physical terms. And so they responded, Lord, always give us this bread. And this is where we ended last week. Give us this bread. You know, he's talking about the bread. Go oh, good. Give us some more bread. We want the manna that will just go on. Now, they, notice they call him Lord here. This is simply like saying sir, okay? They're not using this in the sense they don't see Yeshua as Lord. The crowd was under the mistaken impression that the true bread from heaven was actual edible bread like the manna their ancestors had eaten. They wanted some new type of physical bread from then on, That would never spoil. So they're saying, be like Moses. Keep on giving us this bread, the manna that fills our stomach. And Yeshua then identifies Himself to try to make it real clear to Him as the true bread. Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me will not hunger. He who believes in Me will never thirst. So the Jews ask for something from Christ and He offers Himself. I'm the bread. See, it's not that Yeshua gives bread. He is the bread. He's the bread of life. He offers spiritual food that will completely satisfy man's hunger. Bread here is metonymy for food. Nourishing food that gives life and sustenance. Just as physical life depends on physical food, spiritual life depends on Yeshua. Now we're going to come back to this verse next week and get into the I Am and get into the bread of life. But I want to focus this morning on a couple of the comments that Yeshua makes in chapter 6 that deal with the sovereignty of God in salvation. Notice what he says here. He says, He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now what I want you to see here is coming to Yeshua and believing in Yeshua are synonymous terms. These are parallel terms. Coming to Christ is the same as believing in Him. Believing him is the same as coming to Him. And this is very important to get in this text because we're going to go on and you're going to need to keep this in mind. So keep that in mind. To come to Christ simply means to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ is to come to Christ. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen Me and yet you do not believe. Now don't mistake the fact that the crowds followed Yeshua. They sought Him out. They went after Him. As some expression of faith in him, because they didn't have faith. Remember, just moments before the crowd asked him for a sign to prove that you know he was who he said he was. They have already seen him perform signs and wonders. And yet they didn't see anything in the sign except, hey, you provided for us. We like that. They didn't realize who how can he do these things? It's critical that we remember as we examine these verses. Yeshua is addressing the crowd's unbelief. All right, You've got this group. They just don't believe. That's what He's addressing. He said, you do not believe. You've seen, and yet you don't believe. So Yeshua tells them, even though they have seen Him performing the miraculous signs, they still don't believe. And then He says this, All that the Father gives Me will come to Me. And the one who comes to Me, I will certainly not cast out. Now remembering that two verses earlier, Yeshua connected coming to Him and believing in Him. Since coming to Him is the same as believing in Him, we can translate this this way in verse 37. All the Father gives me will believe in me. Alright? So since the crowd does not believe in Him, they have not come to Him. It is this unbelief then that Yeshua is addressing in this verse. He's talking about unbelief, and and then he goes, and all of a sudden he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So, I think maybe there's almost an unasked question here that Yeshua is answering. Like, why is it that the Jews, the very people of God, the very people that Yeshua came to, don't believe in Him? Or, people could ask, you know, is Yeshua's ministry a failure? They don't even believe in Him. And Yeshua is saying, not at all. He's saying, in effect, your unbelief, notwithstanding, the Father's will is perfect and undeterred. See, because all the Father gives me will come to me. They will. The ones that the Father has given will come. David Brown in his commentary on John writes this. This comprehensive and very grand passage is expressed with a particular artistic precision. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. That is, though ye, as I told you, have no faith in me, my errand into the world shall in no wise be defeated. For all that the Father giveth me shall infallibly come to me. This shall express the glorious certainty of it, the Father being pledged to see to it that the gift be no empty mockery. Why does anybody come to believe in Yeshua? The scripture teach is only because he was given to Yeshua by the Father. So the reason anyone does not come to believe is because they were not given to the Son. Remember, coming to Christ, believing in Christ are synonymous. So who believes in Yeshua? It's all that the Father gives me. The ability to believe on Yeshua requires divine Enablement. It is only those whom the Father enables to believe that come to Yeshua in faith. These are all the people the Father gives to the Son as gifts. See, Yeshua viewed the ultimate cause of faith as God's electing grace, not man's choice. Now, if you're an Armenian, I want you to notice here that the order is crucial all the Father gives me will come to me. Yeshua doesn't say, all who come to me have been given to me by the Father. In other words, if you believe, well, then the Father gives you. That's not what the text says. We don't determine by our response who the Father's gift will be to the Son. Our response is determined prior to that by our election. He says, all the Father gives to Me. The word gives here is a word basically for destiny. It is divine, sovereign election. The concept of the elect being a love gift to the Father. See, that, when you see this, it is so incredible. Before eternity, the Father promised the Son a certain gift for His suffering. See, if the Arminian doctrine is true, Christ could have come into the world, suffered and died on the cross, and nobody ever trusted. Him. Because it's up to us. And nobody, ah, we're not interested. Nobody could have trusted He could have died totally in vain. But no, the Father promised a gift, a love gift. And that's, you got to see yourself as this, people. You are a love gift given by the Father to the Son. A gift. He has given Christ, something for His suffering. Notice what Isaiah writes. Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh has given Me for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. I and the children whom Yahweh has given Me. Who's speaking here? People argue that. People debate that. Who's speaking here? But I think it's simple if you just go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2.13 speak." You know Christ is speaking, and again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. He quotes this. This is Christ. These are the words of Christ. Speaking of Isaiah eight eighteen, the Intervarsity Bible Background Commentary says this: These are not the words of the prophet speaking of himself and his natural children, nor of his spiritual children, his disciples called sometimes the sons of the prophets, but of Christ who has a seed, a spiritual offspring, who are given him of God in the covenant of grace. The Scriptures of the Tanakh represent the Father as promising a certain reward for his suffering on behalf of sinners. Look at Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. That sounds almost harsh to us, doesn't it? The Father was pleased in crushing the Son, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. He will see his offspring. This is a reference to the elect of God. God has given the elect to Christ. We are children of promise. Notice that it says, He shall see it and be satisfied, not frustrated satisfied so when Yeshua says all that the father gives me will come to me he is saying though many may reject me the ones given will come they will believe in me now how can Yeshua be sure that those who the father given him will come to him I mean what about their free will what if they say no I don't want to come how does He deal with that? Well, let's drop down to verse 44. Yeshua says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who has sent Me draws Him, and I'll raise Him up at the last day. Now notice the words, come to Me. What can that mean? It can mean believe in Me. Alright? No one can believe in Me unless the Father who has sent Me draws Him. Now, <laughs> You know, if this verse goes against your theology, you can either twist the verse, distort the verse, make it say something it doesn't say, or you could just change your theology. It'd be a lot easier just line up with the Scriptures. You're in much better standing, okay, than making it say something that doesn't. But I've read the Arminians on this, and they say, well, the word draw here means to woo, or to invite, or to call. We'll talk about that in a minute. Some people would go so far as to say, God invites everybody equally and at all times. They would say the Father draws everybody, and everybody can choose or refuse. Well, this view kind of distorts the text. Because if it's all that Yeshua is trying to say here, His words make no sense in the context of the discussion to which He spoke it. His words only make sense if the implication is that His objectors may not have been drawn. That's what he's saying. You don't believe because you just haven't been drawn by the Father. There are three things I want to point out here. The first one is no one. That's a universal negative, people. This is to say that the phrase no one includes all peoples. Now, what he's saying is no one, not Jew, not Gentile, not slave, not free, not king, not pauper. No one can come to me. It has to do with the ability of man. You can't do it. You just can't do it. And then he says the word unless. This is a necessary condition. Nobody, none, none at all can come to Christ. There's not a person alive that can come to Christ unless there's a necessary condition. Unless what? Unless the Father draws him. God has to give you the ability. Man does not have the ability to come to Christ. Man in his own can't do that. So nobody comes. So unless God does something, nobody comes to Christ. Nobody. Now let's look at the word draw here. Let's see, does this really bear out this idea? You know, because if you're an Arminian and you read this verse, and you go to the Arminian commentator and you read and it says, well, draw just means woo. And you're like, cool. Skip that verse. I got the answer. No, that's not the answer. Okay? The word draw here is the Greek word helkuo. Helkuo means to draw... By irresistible superiority. It's used eight times in the New Testament. And to understand what it means, we just have to look at a few of its uses. Okay? So let's let's look at a few. John 18.10 Simon Peter, then having a sword, Halkuo, drew it and struck the high priest's slate. Alright, does this fit with woo, call, invite? You see Simon Peter, sword, I invite you to come out. I'm wooing you. No, draw. He grabbed it? He pulled it. Irresistible superiority. He drew that sword. That sword had no choice in the matter. But what about the sword's free will? It didn't have any. Peter's will was all that mattered. He just drew that thing out. Let's look at another one. Acts 16, 19. When her master saw that the hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace before the authorities. Well, I don't think woo, call, inviting that makes any sense here. Please, Paul, come before the magistrates. No, they grabbed them and they dragged them there. They didn't have any say in the matter at all. <clears throat> James 2, 6. You have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you before the court? Again, hell kuo. The usage of this verse makes it clear that Helkuo means to drag by irresistible superior. Now please take the time to look up all eight of these verses uh, Helkuo in the New Testament. They all have the idea of dragging, not inviting, or calling. John 21.11 says, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish. How do you think he got that net up there? He wasn't reasoning, he wasn't calling, he wasn't inviting that net. It was a lot of hard work. He grabbed that net and pulled it to shore, all right? Okay, there I gave you five of the eight, so you don't have to look up three on your own, okay? Well, let me give you one more, because this one's controversial at times, so I want to deal with the controversy, all right? John twelve thirty two. The word's not controversial, It's how it's in the sentence here. And if I if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Helkuo, again, Yeshua's going to draw. But see, it says He's going to draw all men. So does that refer to everybody? See, people say, well, it, it means He's going to draw every single person. Then if Helkuo means drag, it means everybody comes. Well, if you are familiar with the Scripture, all doesn't always mean all. In the, in the sense of every single one. Alright? All here means Jews Gentiles, again, very important that we understand this in context. It means all kinds of people. So we need to be Bereans, we need to look up these other uses of Helkuo. I'll tell you, people, I've seen many Arminians fall on this verse of John 6.44. Because it's to me, this is what I call one of those ungetoverable verses. Okay? You just can't fit your theology in here. No one, that's none, not a single person, Jew, Gentile, anybody. No one can believe in Him. And last, there's a condition, the Father who has sent Him drags Him. And I'll raise Him up at the last day. So the definition of Helkuo, again, draw by irresistible purity. You know, we can even go outside the Scripture, and this definition holds true in the text, in secular literature. Let me give you a homer here. He says, And He drew the bow, clutching at once the the notched arrow, and the string of the ox's sinew. All right, you understand what it means to draw a bow. He didn't talk to that. He didn't invite it. He, you had to grab that thing and pull it out. But Sarpion, with strong hands, caught hold of the battlement and tugged, and the whole length of it gave way. Tugged there, Helkuo. All right, so when a drawstring is pulled back, when a battlement is tugged and made to fall, these are not invited, these are not called, they are forced back, they are forced over. The meaning of the word cannot be clear. Nobody is capable of coming to Yeshua unless the Father irresistible draws them. So in John 6:44, Yeshua is saying that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's what Calvinists call irresistible grace or sovereign grace. Now, it's not that God drags people who don't want to come. Okay? We hear the irresistible grace and, you know, God's just dragging their screaming, I don't want to be a Christian! You know, and God's just dragging them into the kingdom. That's not the issue here at all. All right? God makes man willing by His grace. In regeneration, God gives us spiritual life, which includes a desire for Him. He gives us a desire for Christ and we act according to that desire. And we choose Christ. Look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. This, this is a, just an incredible verse. Verses here dealing with the sovereignty of God in salvation. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become formed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. Now these three words, foreknew, predestined, called. This is what we're talking about when we talk about Given. They're given to the Father. These are all involved. God foreknew them, He predestined them, and He called them. That's why they are the given. And He says, And these whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. All that He foreknew, He predestined to be like His Son. And all He predestined, He called, and all He called, He justified. And all He justified, He glorified. These verses teach us two things. God must not call everybody because everybody's not justified. And secondly, the call must be irresistible because everyone who is called is justified. Now, some who resist the doctrine of sovereign grace hold to what is called prevenient grace. It's normally defined as a work that uh, God does for everybody. In other words, God's grace, He just gives everybody grace and it's enough to make it possible for you to choose Christ. Okay, it doesn't make you choose Him, but it makes it possible. So it's just out there. You know, this is just basically a way of saying it's up to you. You make the decision. But if prevenient grace is merely external, then it's going to fail because what good is prevenient grace offered towards dead people? How much outside stimulus do dead people respond to? None. None. And that's what you've got to get. We're spiritually... Dead. If the prevenient grace doesn't give life, then it doesn't help anybody. Now, the ten dollars question for the advocates of prevenient grace is: Why do some cooperate and others don't? Say so that God offered grace to everybody, but some people accepted, some don't. Why? That's the question. Well, they say because I was smarter than you. Oh, all of a sudden we got arrogance involved in the Christianity. Yes, you're dumb. I'm smart. I trusted Christ. You just got no sense. Boy, it gives us room to boast, doesn't it? But the $10 million question for advocates of prevenient grace is, where does the Bible teach such a doctrine? It's nice. It's not biblical. Alright? It's just not biblical. You know, since the Reformation, people have departed from the sovereignty of grace. See, most professing Christians, I think, are liberal But many of those who really are Christians, most have departed from the Reformation in this way. All the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Cramner, the German Reformer, the Swiss Reformer, the French Reformer, the Scottish Reformer, the English Reformer, every one of them believed not only in grace, but in sovereign grace. And the majority of believers today try to have the grace without the sovereignty of grace. All the Reformers believe that grace... Was not only provided, but applied. And what was interesting is all around, you know, we got it in, it's happening in Germany, Switzerland, in France, in Scotland, all these guys are coming to believe the same exact thing at the same exact time. Because it's a work of God reforming the church. Evangelical Christianity is trying to hold on to grace provided while rejecting grace applied. It's not that God drags those who don't want to come. It's that God makes men willing by His grace. In regeneration, God gives us spiritual life, which includes a desire for Him. Now, if God gives us a desire for Christ, then we act according to our desire and we come to Christ. Listen, I received Christ because I wanted to. And I wanted to because He did the work in my heart. Because I never wanted to before. All of a sudden, I wanted to. A sinner absolutely cannot come to Christ until God first does something in the sinner's nature. I've never seen anybody deal with this verse correctly. Just deal with the language that's in the verse. There's not contradictions in the Bible. All right, it doesn't say this here, and over here says something else. But I thought the Bible says, whosoever will may come. That's true. If you will, come on. Because the only reason you will is God made you willing. Man has no part whatsoever in regeneration. It's it's a work of God. So to, to be given is to be part of the elect. He has given the Son this gift. Yeshua says it again in verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me. This is the Father's will. That of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it up at the last day. Let me ask you, who is it that receives resurrection life? It's all that the Father has given Christ. Isn't that what that verse says? If the Father gives them, the Son's going to raise them at the last day. Every one of them. All who are given are raised. God the Father has given the elect to Christ as a gift of love. Yeshua says it again in verse 65 of the same chapter. And He was saying, For this reason I have said to you, That no one can come to me. There's that idea again. No one can come to me unless... Oh, there's an exception. Unless it has been granted him from my Father. Four times in this chapter, he tells these unbelievers, you can't believe in him unless it's been given to you by the Father who will draw all that he has given. Now, I'm sure that you realize that this truth is not isolated to John chapter 6. Alright? It's everywhere in the Scriptures. We see it again in chapter 10. The Jews then gathered around Him and were saying to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? (laughs) He wasn't trying to keep them in suspense. They're just dull of hearing. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You don't get it. Yeshua answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in My Father's name, these testify of Me. But you do not believe. Why? Because you're not My sheep. You're not My sheep. That's why you don't believe. Here again, those Jews do not believe on the fact that Yeshua was the Messiah. Why? He said because they weren't His sheep. They had not been given Him by the Father. Now notice that Yeshua does not say they were not His because they didn't believe. He said the proof that they were not His was the unbelief. Simply put, if they believed, it was because they belonged to Him. They had been given. But since they didn't believe, they were not. Christ's sheep are identified by their faith. So Christ tells these Jews, they did not believe because they were not His sheep. Now this verse points clearly to the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement. In other words, Christ died not merely to make possible the salvation of all mankind, but to make certain the salvation of the elect. His sheep, those who the Father has given Him. In other words, there's a specific people that will come to him. He says in 10 20, 7, 20, my sheep hear my voice. Because they belong to him. So they hear his voice. People, this is, this is so important. I heard of a man who spent a lot of time in Israel telling about sheep. And he said, we went to, he had a group out there in the Golan Heights area, and they were just, they found an old Roman fortress that was basically collapsed. And they put their stuff in there for the night, and then they were doing some more touring. Well, they came back, and there was like he said, 500 sheep in there. And he said, so we had to go find our stuff, and it was sheep were all over it, and you know, sheep were going to the bathroom on it. So they got their junk out of there, and they moved off to a distance. And they said, well, the amazing thing, I said, There's, this is going to be good. There was like three or four shepherds brought all their sheep in there, and so he said, this will be a good lesson for you. So they spent the night there, and the next morning, one of the shepherds got up and he stood a little distance. He started calling his sheep. And a group of the sheep came out and followed him, and they left. And the next sheep would come up and he called his sheep and his sheep came out and they followed him and he left. How'd those sheep know? Yeshua said, my sheep hear my voice. They understood this. We're sheep dumb today. We don't know anything about sheep. They understood what he was saying. <laughs> yeah, we're dumb sheep and we're sheep dumb too. All right? He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, nor will anyone snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Are you starting to see the picture? The Father gives, the Father draws, and all who are given are secure in Christ. You know, people talk about losing their salvation. They don't understand what salvation is. It's a work of Christ. From eternity past, you're given. That's why you're there. If you think you can lose it, it's because you thought you performed something to get it. There's no performance involved here. The Father gives. The Father draws. All who He draws are secure in Christ. And we're going to look at this next week. We'll deal with this passage a little more. Let's back up in 10. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life. For the sheep. So Yeshua lays down His life for His sheep. Who are the sheep? Is it every human being? No, I think the sheep refer to the elect. We just saw that the sheep hear His voice. Look at Matthew 25. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another. And the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. Alright, so you got sheep and you got goats, and there's a separation, then the king will say to those on his right, that who are the sheep, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, sheep from the foundation of the world. Those who are the sheep inherit the kingdom, those who are the goats go into everlasting fire. Now as we saw in John 10, 15, Yeshua laid down His life for the sheep. He didn't lay down His life for the goats. You know, Christ died only for His sheep. The concept of believers being gifts of the Father to whom the Son just forms a central element in the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17. It says, Yeshua spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You even as You gave Him authority over all flesh that to all You have given Him He may give eternal life. Who's He give eternal life to? The ones that have been given. The sheep. Those who come to Him. Those who believe in Him. The elect. I have manifest Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours, and You gave them to Me, and they have kept Your word. He gave a certain group. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. That's kind of weird. Christ's not praying for the world. But for those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. Who does he pray for? He prays for the given ones. He prays for the ones the Father has given him. And he says he doesn't pray for the world. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. The ones you've given me, they're given by God the Father, they're children of promise. God is selective in salvation. You know why that bothers people? I don't know. God doesn't get to choose. Okay? Most people don't like God choosing. But over and over again, He, the ones you gave to me. And just in case you think this is only taught in the Gospel of John, okay, it's not just the Gospel of John. I mean, Paul's really big on this. But Matthew is too. Look what Matthew says. And she will bear a son, and you shall call His name Yeshua. Mary did not call her son Jesus. First of all, there was no J in the Hebrew alphabet, okay? So she would have had a hard time calling Him Jesus. And secondly, what does Jesus mean? It doesn't mean anything. But Yeshua means God saves. That's what the name means. See, in Hebrew, names have meaning. In our country, names don't mean anything. It's just Bob. What's Bob mean? It means Bob. That's what it means, okay? That's the meaning of the word. But in their, their culture, the name had a meaning. And Yeshua means Yahweh saves. That's where they're going to call His name Yahweh. Why do they call His name that? Because He's going to save His people from their sins. Now, two things in this verse we've got to understand. First, Yeshua did not come to save all men. He came to save His people. The Reformers call this, again, limited atonement. It doesn't mean that Christ's death is limited in power. It was limited in scope, or purpose. In other words, he didn't die for all humanity, he died for his people. See, if he died for all humanity, all humanity would be saved. His death is effectual. The next is the phrase he will save his people. Notice that the angel didn't say he's going to offer salvation to everybody. He didn't say that. He says he's going to save his people. Offering salvation implies it can be rejected. This verse plainly states He will save His people, emphasizing a complete work and the people will come. Yeshua taught that He was not going to die for all humanity. Matthew 20.28 Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Alright? 26.28 For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many For the forgiveness of sins. So he came to gave his life a ransom to pour it out for many, not for the all. Now, this bothers people today because they say, well, that's not fair. Listen, fair is everybody's judged. Everybody perishes. That's fair. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody perishes. If you want fair, that's what you get. Judgment. But grace is God steps in and he saves a few. Well, why did He save everybody? Because He didn't want to. He has just as right to display the attribute of His wrath and His judgment as He does to display His grace and His mercy. But we like grace and mercy, so we want to get rid of those other attributes, alright? You know, the church today is being flooded with a new gospel. It's a humanistic gospel. Because the gospel is always and essentially a proclamation of divine sovereignty in mercy and judgment. It's a summons to bow down and worship the mighty Lord whom man depends for all his good. Its center of reference is Yahweh. But in the new gospel, the center of reference is man. You choose. You decide. You initiate salvation. It's all about you. The chief aim of the gospel was to teach men to worship Yahweh. But the concern of the new gospel seems limited to making men feel better. You got a bad marriage? Come to Christ. You having trouble with your finances? Come to Christ. You know, you're having a rough time. Come, like, He's going to fix every one of your problems. It's not come to Christ because you're a sinner condemned by God. You need Him as a Savior. It's so man-centered. And our minds have been conditioned to think of the cross as a redemption which does less than redeem. And Christ is a Savior who does less than save. And if God's love as a weak affection, which cannot keep anyone from perishing without their help. And of faith is the human help which God needs for his purpose. People, this is the gospel. The gospel is God saves sinners. That's the gospel. Let me break it down. God The triune Yahweh, Father, Son, Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of the chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming the Spirit, executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing. Saves. Does everything from first to last that is involved in bringing men from death to life. He calls. He keeps. He justifies, He sanctifies, He glorifies. God saves sinners. Guess what? That's you. Okay. Men as God finds them guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual condition. This is the gospel. God saves sinners. So all the thanks, all the praise, all the glory go to God in salvation. Man doesn't get any. Let me close this morning with a verse from Isaiah 46, 9, and 10. Remember the four things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. People, God's will is never frustrated. He's not in heaven saying, oh, I just wish they would trust me. I had such great plans for that person. I wish they would just trust me. No, His will is not frustrated. He calls all His children. Yeshua has been given. He has given the elect as a love gift to Christ. And all that He has given to Christ will believe in Him. And all who believe in Him will be resurrected. All will have eternal life. His purpose, His eternal purpose will be established. Now, because the church is so man-centered today, and it's all about people, and we're here to please people, that's what we're here to do, make you happy, okay? And that's why the church doesn't teach the Bible. There's things in there that tick people off, okay? And if you want people happy, you got to not tick them off, okay? So you be like my buddy Joel, and you just, you know, come up with a nice little phrase, you know. This is my Bible. Today I'm here to be taught. And I'm like, when, where? Who's going to even open that thing? You know, and then he goes on to tell, oh, God wants you to be rich. He wants you happy. He wants, and I'm thinking, wow, who wouldn't want that? No wonder that place is full. Break out the Bible and start teaching something. See how many people take off? All right? It's man-centered. Listen, it's, the gospel is not about us. It's about God. He alone has received the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your matchless, wonderful gospel. Lord, help us to understand how great you are, how powerful you are. And may we bow before you in worship. May we realize all the thanks, all the praise, all the adoration and salvation goes to you, and you alone are worthy. Lord, thank you for this text. I pray that you give everyone us the heart of a Berean Lord that we would really let this text say what it says. We'd study it. We'd dig. We'd not take what they heard and believe it but they'd do some research. Find out if these things are so. And if they are so, bow to them. Thank you Lord for your grace. Amen.